passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. In 1851, an English missionary named Alan Gardner was shipwrecked. He and a number of the other survivors uh, of the boat after it was shipwrecked ended up being able to swim and make it to a small, uninhabited island off the tip of South America. There they were for the next six months until a, a supply ship was able to come and check on them. Unfortunately, slowly, one by one, each of them starved to death. When the supply ship arrived, every single one was dead. From what we can tell, the last person alive was Alan Gardner. Alan, he was a Christian, he was a missionary, and he would spend time in God's Word and he would write in his journal. And the last entry he wrote that we know when he was still alive, he wrote this verse and his reflections on it. The verse is Psalm 34, verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Ours, or maybe a day before his death as he reflected on that verse, he essentially summarized in his journal his thoughts with these words. I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God. How could he say that? Here he is, alone on an uninhabited island. He has seen every single one of his shipmates die. He is facing starvation, alone, death. But he's overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Now, for us, we tend to find the goodness of God where we define it a little differently. Uh, you know, when we have money in the bank, well, God is good then. When we have health, well, God is good. We have a new car in the God garage. God is good. We tend to equate God's goodness with our good circumstances. But Alan Gardner had terrible circumstances. He's dying, yet he can still find the goodness of God and be overwhelmed by it. I think most of us would give a million dollars for the answer. What was it that allowed Alan Gardner to be so overwhelmed by God's goodness in the midst of death and depravity and pain? Well, I have some good news for you this morning. We're going to find that answer. What can give us joy in the goodness of God in spite of circumstances? And by the way, I'm not going to charge you a million dollars for the answer. So it'll be a very, very good morning. Now, across both of our campuses, we have been studying our way through the book of Habakkuk. And this morning, we'll be finishing our study in the book of Habakkuk. Next week, Pastor Stephen will be teaching. He'll be teaching on Daniel chapter 6. Uh, the week after that, we're going to do a vision message and what will be our fall emphasis. And then shortly after that, we'll be diving right into the study of the Gospel of Mark, which, by the way, will take us about a year. 
Now, for those of you who are new to our study of the book of Habakkuk, let me take a moment just to bring you up to speed of what's been happening in this book. Habakkuk is an Old Testament prophet of God uh, to the nation of Judah. And Habakkuk is frustrated with his land and with his people because he says everyone has become so godless and they've gone so far from God. By the way, anybody else feel that way sometimes? Habakkuk felt the same way. And so Habakkuk has been saying, God, you need to show up. You need to do something. Now, in Habakkuk's mind, he's thinking revival. Revival would be the way to go. But God has a slightly different answer. He says, Habakkuk, I'm going to be sending the Babylonians. You know that vicious, ruthless, godless people that everybody on the planet is shaking in fear of? Yeah, those guys. I'm sending them your way to conquer and enslave your people. Now, Habakkuk wasn't really thrilled with that answer, to say the least. By the way, this is my neighborhood, God. I live here too. Uh, This is going to hurt. God, I think you're overreacting a little bit. I mean, come on. Like the worst of a people of Judah are still a hundred times better than the best of the people of Babylon. We're not that bad. How could you send the Babylonians to conquer and enslave us? And that brings us to sort of what we looked at last week, where God says, the Babylonians, they're, they're just a tool in my hand, a tool I'm going to use to discipline my people, a tool to break them of their sin, a tool to lead them to repentance. But by the way, Yes, I do know the Babylonians are incredibly vile and incredibly sinful. But when I'm done with you, I will be taking care of them. Even though it looks like they rule the world and evil is out of control, God is still on his throne, we learned last week, and nobody gets away with anything. And God will punish the Babylonians as well. That brings us to Habakkuk chapter 3, where we find us this morning where we're going to find how God is going to teach Habakkuk where to find joy and where to find hope in the midst of the tragedy and pain of the Babylonian invasion. God is going to show us the same place that Alan Gardner found joy in the goodness of God in the midst of dying alone on an uninhabited desert island. Now, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to take your Bibles out and I'd like you to turn to Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3. And I'd like you to stand as we read it together. Um, If you are using the Pew Bibles, you'll find Habakkuk chapter 3 on page 786. So stand as we read this third chapter together out of reverence for the Word of God. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. And in wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. 
rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You've trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. That ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. A lot in there. Uh, A lot of what sounds like difficult stuff. So let's begin to work our way through this. The first thing we need to ask is this question. What is the genre of this chapter? By the way, the word genre is simply a a big word for a literary type. What type of literature is this that we just read? And there's a clue to that in the very beginning in the first verse. It's also, by the way, a clue in the last verse of this section where it says this. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shiganoth. What you learn as you study this is this first verse is actually a title. It's a very similar title that is used in five of the Psalms. 
Think back over the paragraphing we just read in uh, this chapter. All of a sudden, you start to realize that this is not prose, that this is actually poetry. This is actually a psalm written by Habakkuk at the very end of this book. A psalm is a song. This is a song that God's people were to sing after the Babylonians invaded them. A song for them to sing to remind them of the goodness of God. To keep their eyes on their God in the midst of overwhelming situations. Now, if you look here, there's a couple other clues that this is a song to be sung. It says, uh, according to Shiginoth. Now, what does Shiginoth mean? Just to be honest, we have no idea. But we do know this. Shinoth is in Hebrew, it's some kind of musical term. It's also used in Psalm chapter 7. It's a description about how this song is to be sung. Another uh, phrase that appeared a couple times in this chapter as we read it, that it doesn't seem to make too much sense, at least at first, is the word sila. Now, what does the word sila mean? Once again, to just to be honest, we don't exactly know. Sometimes it appears to mark off stanzas in a song. Sometimes it seems to mean crescendo or get louder or more enthusiastic in a song. But while we don't know what Shiginoth and we don't know what Sheila means, we do know they're musical terms. So what we do know is that this entire chapter is a song to be sung by God's people when times are tough, when the bottom is dropped out of their world. It's a song to be sung to keep their eyes fixed on the goodness of God in the midst of tragedy. That's the purpose of this song. Now let's dive into this song a little bit. Let's look at the, the first line on it where we find this, Habakkuk wants God essentially to, to show up. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. You'll notice that in your Bible, the little term, O Lord, is all in capital letters. Now you may wonder, why is it in capital letters? That is because in the Hebrew, it's not talking about like God in the generic. It is talking about God in the specific. The Hebrew here is the word Yahweh. This is the name that God revealed himself by to Moses at the burning bush. This is like God's personal name. And Habakkuk addresses him by his personal name because this is, a, this is not a generic song. This is a specific, close, heartfelt prayer to God. And what does he say? I've heard the report of you and of your work. In other words, I went to Sunday school. I learned all those Bible stories. I remember times when you showed up. They told me about that. My Crosswinds kids class in Iwana. There was the flood. There was the Red Sea. There's all kinds of times when you showed up, God. I remember that. I wasn't there for that. 
but I heard about that. And then he pauses, and remember, this is music, and this is poetry, and he says, once again, O Lord, do I fear. Once again, using God's personal name, and he says, I I fear you, Lord. By the way, this is not a Halloween fear. This is not like a boo, scary fear. This is reverence fear. God, you are amazing. You are awesome. I have great respect for you. This is not, he's saying, I'm not going to treat you, God, like you're a Teletubby or like you're a big purple dinosaur or you're like my little pet friend. You are God. I have reverence and awe for you. And I remember when you showed up in might and power in the past. And he says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In the midst of the years is just simply a Hebraism for in my lifetime or in a short time. He's saying, God, I remember the Bible stories I heard. When you showed up in might and when you showed up in power, and I have reverence and awe for you, God, in my lifetime, show up again with your awesomeness. Show up with your power. Show up again to save your people. And then he says, oh, and by the way, in wrath, remember mercy. When you show up, God, I I remember this, by the way, uh, you don't just show up to save your people, but you also show up to judge people. Like there's a lot of body bags when you're done. Uh, And we probably deserve that right now. That's sort of why you're sending the Babylonians. So God, show up again to save us in this crisis. But in your wrath, when you come, please remember to be merciful to us. Now, what's going to happen for the rest of this song is he's going to start to recall times when God showed up to save his people when they were in a crisis situation in the past. He's going to begin by talking about how God showed up in the Exodus. Remember that with Egypt? When they were commanded to throw all the baby boys in the Nile? And they were trying to genocide the nation and God showed up to save them in the Exodus. He's going to recall that. What happens when God shows up? God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah, there's the musical term again. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Well, what is Teman? You do a little study on this. It's actually an area to the south of Judah, just above Edom. What is Mount Paran? It's a mountain in the wilderness. And those who study this, Bible scholars say, well, what he's starting to do is he's marking out key points on the journey of Israel's exodus from Egypt. This is what he's going after. And then he says this, his splendor covered the heavens. Okay, if this has to do with the Exodus and God showing up with might and displaying his power to save his people, when in the Exodus did God's splendor cover the heavens? Do you guys remember when they were let out a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night? 
Now, I don't know what kind of Bible story books that they used. Sometimes I remember some of the Bible story books we used when I was a kid. It has this cloud, sort of like this little puffy thing that's just floating above the tabernacle. That's not the picture. The picture is that there are thousands upon thousands of people being led out of Egypt. And everybody can see this massive cloud. His God's splendor covers the entire heavens. And then during the night, it's not a cloud. It's a pillar of fire. It's not a big lighter. I mean, this brightness of God's fire lights up the entire camp of thousands upon thousands of people. God is showing his splendor and power to save his people. And by the way, this didn't just make God famous among the Israelites. It made God famous in the world. Everybody knew about his power to save his people. Remember this when you go to the book of Joshua and Joshua is going to the promised land, conquering the promised land and you come to Joshua in the battle of Jericho. Do you remember this little line? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. This is Jericho, like a long way from Egypt. They still remember God's splendor and might and power that he displayed in the Exodus when God showed his mighty hand to save his people. And what Habakkuk is saying is, God, do it again. Show up in my life, in my generation. And by the way, he continues to talk about what the Exodus was like. Yahweh's brilliance, he says, is more than we can handle. This is going to be interesting. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. What this part is talking about is when God showed up on Mount Sinai. We give him the Ten Commandments with Moses, that he showed up in brightness and light, that his brightness of his presence was like the sun itself. Now, here's a question. How many of us can look in the sun in the middle of the day? Nobody can. We can't handle gazing at the sun's brilliance. The picture that Habakkuk is poetically painting for us is that when God came down to Mount Sinai, it was like the sun came down to the earth. It was that kind of brilliance, the sun on top of the mountain. And he continues to paint this poetically by saying this, rays flashed from his hand. This word rays here is a unique Hebrew word. It's used only one other time in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, it describes what Moses' face was like when he came down from Mount Sinai after meeting with God. Remember how his face shone? And it says in that passage that rays of light came off of Moses' face after meeting with God. The idea is that God is so awesome 
And he is so bright and filled with light that when Moses met with him, he couldn't help but absorb that light. And for a long time thereafter, he shone like a light bulb at night. God's pretty brilliant, isn't he? He's pretty bright and glorious. Now, I don't know about you. I can stand outside all day long. I mean, I go inside at night, I don't glow. You hang out with God and you will glow. And here it says, that light, that brilliance, it flashes from his hand. And notice he says, and there he veiled his power. This incredible brilliance and light of God that was able to be seen when he was active, saving his people. It came from his hand, but his hand was a closed fist hand at that time. It was veiled. It wasn't an open fist hand where the full brilliance of God could be seen. Because you know what? The full brilliance of God would have been even more than Moses or anyone could handle. That's why it says in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, that nobody can survive in God's presence because his full brilliance is too much for anyone to handle. That's why it says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, that even the angels are forced to veil themselves in God's full presence because of his brilliance being so bright. That's why it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that God dwells in unapproachable light that nobody has seen nor can see. Yet when God shows up to save his people, he begins to reveal a measure of his brilliance. An amazing and awesome God. That is the God that we serve. By the way, it continues and says Yahweh's presence is more than, not just us, but it's more than creation can endure. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Incidentally, this uh, word pestilence, as you start to study this out, we're still referring back to God revealing his glory and power to save his people in the Exodus. Specifically, this is referring back to the fifth plague, where all of a sudden the horses, the cattle, the donkey, they all, the animals started to die. And Habakkuk says, you know why they died? Because the approaching presence of God is more than they could handle. That's how mighty and awesome he is. And then you know, Habakkuk flicks it around. If that's what it's like for the approaching presence of God, what happens when God is leaving on the backside? Plague follows at his heels. Now, I'm not too sure why the translators of the ESV use the word plague, because you look this word up in the Hebrew, and it has a much more graphic description. It means flames, sparks, Bolts of thunder. God's very feet are burning with fire and emitting bolts of thunder and leaving sparks. And where he has walked, the earth behind him is molten lava. That's the picture of the splendor, 
the greatness and the holiness of God that he begins to reveal when he moves to save his people. Now, uh, there's a number of these interesting comparisons that we could make, but in the interest of time, I won't make all of them, but I will bring this up. In this final chapter and in the first chapter of Habakkuk, there's comparisons. Remember the Babylonians that Habakkuk talks about being the dreaded people of the earth, the most fearsome people of the earth, which everybody shakes? Who's really more dreaded? Who's really more fearsome? Who's really more awesome? The Babylonians? Or our mighty God, who begins to reveal just a measure of his power when it comes to saving his people in crisis? It's obviously our God. And then he talks about the grandeur of our God. Yahweh stands over the earth. Habakkuk 3 6. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. And what he's saying here is God is not like the Babylonians' gods. The Babylonian gods were part of the earth. Our God stands over the earth. He's like a carpenter. You know a carpenter stands over something he's working with and he measures it, and then he cuts it and moves it? That's what our God is like with the entire earth. Nations, entire nations, he picks them up and he shakes them like a snow globe. You ever done that? That's the way God can handle a nation. How about great mountains of the earth? Eternal mountains like Everest and Kilimanjaro. It says they're scattered before him. The idea is he can take his hand and he can whack the biggest mountain and it shatters into pieces. That's how big and great and awesome our God is. The everlasting hills, he says, sank low. The picture is like the Rocky Mountain Range. It's like Plato to him. He takes his thumb and he makes it from a great mountain range into a great depression, to a valley, as he can effortlessly change it at will, like a great carpenter over the earth. Back he continues. Yahweh's reign, by the way, he says, is worldwide. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Last week in Habakkuk chapter 2, we learned that the Babylonians had a desire for worldwide domination. And for the most part, we would say that they did achieve worldwide domination. But actually, if you look at it on a map, go ahead and Jeremy put that up there. They didn't dominate the entire world. This is the part of the world they dominated. Now, for their time, in their space, that is a huge piece of territory for the Babylonians to conquer. But honestly, it is not worldwide domination. It's a part of the world. Now, inside of their territory, And by the way, I'm making a little bit of a guess at this. I'm not 100% sure. I'm giving you my best answer. Inside of their territory, there were peoples that they had never officially conquered. The peoples they never officially conquered were the nomadic peoples, the tent-dwelling peoples. 
You see, the Babylonians specialized in conquering cities, in geography that was established. They would get all their army around it and slowly sack it and wear it down. But what do you do when you have a nomadic people? By the time you get there, <laughs> we moved on. Moving target, hard to find. So the tents of Cushan and the tents of Midian are the nomadic people, it seems to me, that were living in the Babylonian Empire that were never conquered by the Babylonians. But how does this compare to our mighty God? He controls the entire world, not just part of the world. And even these nomadic people shake and they tremble in his presence. Now, as the, the story continues, we find Yahweh displaces power over creation to save his people in verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Let's begin at the very end of this verse. First of all, why did God show up in power? Why did he show up to display his glory? Was it because he was bored on the weekends? Because he had nothing else to do? No. Again and again, when his people were in crisis, when his people were threatened, God showed up to save his people. That's when he shows up and displays his mighty power. And by the way, he talks here about two different ways that God showed up and displayed his mighty power besides Mount Sinai and besides the, the, the cloud and the pillar of fire. He says, was your wrath against the sea and your, or was your wrath against the river and your indignation against the sea? Remember when God's people were in the Exodus? What is the first major geographical obstacle they ran across when they left Egypt? the Red Sea. They were pinned in on one side with the Egyptians on the other side. God showed up. God displayed his mighty power to save them in a crisis. And the scriptures say that he literally caused the Red Sea to part, the waters to congeal. And his people walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. Displayed his mighty power to save his people. Now, later in the history of God's people, when it came time to go into the promised land, it wasn't a sea that kept them out, but a river. Remember the Jordan River? When they came to it, the Jordan River, it says, was in flood stage. It was like a sea. And what were they told to do with the, with the ark? To put their feet into the edge of the water, and the waters once again split to the side. And God's people walked across on dry ground. God revealing his mighty power to save his people in time of need. You see why Habakkuk is saying, show up, show up, do it again, God. The Babylonians are coming. Then he says this, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. And I'll just essentially put it this way. God is a warrior, he says, who fights to save his people. And then we see this at the very end, and we'll get into this 
he doesn't just show up to display his mighty power to save his people, but he shows up and he even makes creation itself defy the laws of nature to save his very people. And I mentioned there's a number of contrasts between the Babylonians' God and, and the Israelites' God. And here, let me just make a little uh, point of interest. Babylonians were polytheists. They believe in many gods. But each one of their gods was an element of nature. There was a storm god. I believe his name was Shamish. Uh, there was, uh, excuse me, there was a sun god whose name was Shamish. Uh, a moon god whose name was Sin. There was a storm god, and there was a sky god, and they believed all these different gods of the elements of the universe were in conflict with one another. And here, Habakkuk says, all the elements of the universe are not gods to be worshipped. They're part of God's creation. They're part of Yahweh's creation, and they all answer to his beckon call. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The mighty mountains, they don't stand opposed to you, God, and proud and tall. It says they saw you and writhed. It literally means to fall to the floor and to twist in agony. <laughs> it's the Hebrew term for birth pains. Proud, mighty mountains don't stand against God. They fall in humility before God. And what about the deep waters, the mighty rivers and the mighty ocean? What does it do? It gives forth its voice and it lifts its hands on high. The ocean sings praises to you, God. It lifts its hands in worship to you, God. All of creation is not opposed to Yahweh. It's in subservience to Yahweh. Let me just flip my page and it won't do that. Okay. And he says this, The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. The very sun and moon obey your command. Now, by the way, this is also a veiled reference. Once again, he's going through some biblical history. It's a veiled reference to Judges chapter 10. Remember when Joshua was in battle and God commanded the sun to stand still so there'd be an extra long day so Israel could finish taking vengeance on his enemies? And here what we find is first God revealed his mighty power to save his people in the Exodus. And now God has taken the very elements of creation itself and bent the laws of physics to save his people, causing the very sun to just stop in the sky. Yahweh displays his power against the enemies of his people, always to save them. Here's the big idea. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. What gets God angry? What gets God upset? What causes him to crush people? 
He fights for his people and defends them from their enemies. And how completely does he destroy them? It says he crushes their head and he tears them open from bottom to top and completely disembowels them. That is utter and complete destruction. God shows up in power to save his people like he did in the Exodus and he reveals his glory. God shows up in power to save his people and he bends the very elements of nature to do it, like causing the sun to stand still in the sky. And now we find God shows up in power to save his people, but he does it through providence. And the way he orders and directs circumstances. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. The Babylonians were famous for their arrows, for their assault on cities with their arrows. And here God says, he can turn those mighty weapons of the Babylonians around and use the weapons that they use to defeat others to defeat them. That God providentially saves his people sometimes by these remarkable reversals where the weapons people have to destroy them is used actually against their enemies. I'll give you an example. Who here remembers the book of Esther? You guys remember Haman? Remember Mordecai? Remember how Haman built the gallows upon which he planned to hang Mordecai? How he planned to genocide the entire Jewish people? And God, once again, would need to display his mighty power to come to the rescue of his people. And he did. By orchestrating a great and sudden reversal through Esther was his chosen tool. And who hung on Haman's gallows? Not Mordecai, the one he had built it for, but he hung on it himself. See how he's talking about this? How God sometimes saves his people by providence and great reversals? Now, knowing Yahweh's history of using his power to save his people, how does that change the way Habakkuk now thinks about the coming Babylonian invasion. He says, I hear my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. I think of the Babylonians coming. My lips are shaking. It's going to be terrible. My legs are giving out from under me. But I do know this. That God has always showed up to save his people. That we will not be destroyed and he will show up once again to save us. Maybe in might and power like he did in Exodus. Maybe by bending creation maybe by providence, but he will show up to save us once again. And that brings us full circle. Full circle to where we started. 
How do we find joy in our times of troubles? How can Habakkuk and God's people find joy even when the Babylonians are coming? And here's what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the field, and there be no herd in the stalls. The picture that Habakkuk gives is a time of complete and total disaster. No figs in the trees, no grapes in the vine, no olives, no flocks, no herds. A picture of literally starving to death. Absolutely the worst of circumstances. A picture very similar to starving to death alone on a deserted island off the tip of South America. Where does Habakkuk say you find joy in that time? Here's what he says. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. And he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. There are three three places he finds joy when all the circumstances have turned against him. First, he says, I find joy because I have Yahweh. When everything else is taken away, he is filled with joy because he knows God the mighty God of the universe who is as bright as light, the God whose feet are like flames of fire, the God who stands over the earth. He knows God and God knows him. So many people in the world don't know God. Yet he has a relationship with him and that brings him great joy. But this relationship does something. He has joy because Yahweh promises to save me. Now, for Habakkuk, in this context, at this time, the salvation to which he primarily referred was obviously the salvation of his people. The salvation and not the obliteration of the people of Israel. Because he knew God has always showed up to save his people in the past. God would show up to save his people in the present. And God would save them from the Babylonians. But we're New Testament Christians. We're in a slightly different time. What does this mean for us? Actually, it's even better news. We know that God has broadened his plan beyond just the people of Israel. God has a much broader plan to not just save them, but to save all of those who would place their faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. See, God acted and revealed his mighty power to save his people once again. His own son took on flesh. He came to earth. He died in our place for our sins. And just like it says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous are those who live by faith. Those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. 
by God's mighty power. And by the way, God's mighty power doesn't just save us from the Babylonians. It saves us from an enemy far worse than the Babylonians ever could be. From Satan, sin, and death, and our just condemnation forever in the lake of fire. My friends, that's something to have joy for, isn't it? That we are saved. And lastly, I have joy because Yahweh promises to be my strength. God promises to sustain and strengthen his people as they face the challenges of each day. Literally, he says, like a deer able to tread on my high places because of God's strength in my time of trouble. Now, I don't know if he's referring exactly to this animal, but there is an animal called the ebex in that part of the world. We call these the climbing goats. Go ahead and put those up, Jeremy. They have a tendency, they like to do this, they find completely precipitous places that no animal could ever go, and using only a toehold, they casually and comfortably walk on the edge of these precipices. And Habakkuk says, because God is our strength, even though we're in times of life where we're just like a a sheer cliff and there's nothing left but a toehold, God, through his strength, enables us to rely and to make it through those times. This morning, when you came in to the church, I don't know what troubles you're facing. Maybe you came today and you're facing cancer. Maybe you came and you're facing depression. Maybe you came and you're facing financial disaster. Maybe you're facing relational disaster. No matter what troubles you're facing, as God's people, we do not find our joy in our circumstances, but we find our joy in knowing our God in knowing that he promises to save us and that he promises to give us strength for every challenge that we face. So we can say, in the absolute worst of circumstances, the same thing that Habakkuk said, the same thing that Alan Gardner said, as he was dying alone on an uninhabited island. I am overwhelmed by the goodness of my God. Let us pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.